from 2015 to 2020, there were over 100 million hectares of indigenous uh, local community lands that were formally recognized. And that was only possible because of that legwork and that groundwork that was done by those communities. But it does show the potential uh, of that transformation at scale. And now just to give you a bit of context, 100 million hectares in five years, that's 300 Puerto Ricos in total uh, square uh, surface area. And we still have a long ways to go. There's over 1.3 billion hectares of indigenous lands that have not been formally recognized. But it what this uh, window of five years shows us is that with political will, with adequate technical and financial resources, and with patient uh, support from donors and supporting agencies, that and you giving uh, communities the power, they can make uh, transform. Uh, they they can make transformative change at a large scale. Now, we may disagree on this a little bit. Calling the next grand bargain, the great leap sideways. This is the podcast from hell. Grand bargain. Decolonizing aid. Humanity. Humanitarian action takes place at the edge of chaos. And to find the right answers, we need smart, honest conversations. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to Humanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. So Alex, uh, here we are again with our second and final episode on HLP. In the first episode, we first spoke about how HLP is this sort of invisible problem that nobody owns. It sort of affects everything, but, but it's nobody's responsibility. And then we looked at how some actors are trying to address that issue at the global level, strategically developing and positioning HLP. And then after that, we took a deep dive into Somalia, where we had a very pleasant conversation with Shazan, who, who told us about the fantastic work she's doing there with developing durable solutions. What were your main takeaways from that first episode? My takeaways from episode one was that when people actually start paying attention to HLP, amazing things can happen. Um, but that there's always the problem of scalability. It is a problem that affects virtually everybody, but how can humanitarian agencies actually address those needs when it affects virtually everybody? And so I think that that's what I'm excited to explore in this, um, in this episode, where we are looking at how different organizations and communities are imagining uh, impact at scale. Yeah, that was my main concern as well. On one side, it was amazing to hear about the, the work they're doing with Durable Solutions, but it's hard to see how an approach like the one they're using can be really scalable. And if you're only reaching some thousands of people out of millions in need, then we obviously need to, to find different approaches also. Now, that doesn't take away anything from the work they're doing. It's amazing. But we do have to also explore different strategies to achieve scale. Yeah. And I think that's where we're uh, looking at the cases uh, in Puerto Rico and Ukraine will uh, maybe provide us a pathway for, for seeing how that can happen. So let's first go to Puerto Rico. Who are we going to talk to there? We're speaking today with Dr. Ana Cristina Gomez Perez, who is a professor at the School of Law at the University of Puerto Rico. And she works as an advisor for Habitat for Humanity in Puerto Rico. Let's hear what she had to say. Dr. Perez. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome. I'm so happy to be here. So, Dr. Bress, can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that 
communities are facing in Puerto Rico and the types of solutions that uh, are being developed to support those communities to have stronger land and housing rights. Sadly, in Puerto Rico, we have experienced multiple disasters in the last few years. Hurricane Maria hit in 2007 and caused extensive damage, impacting 60% of the island home. Approximately 400 units had major damage. The main problem is that we also have trouble accessing the, fund, the recovery funds. The statistic of FEMA denials of a request for recovery form after a disaster, especially after Hurricane Maria, are impressive. More than a half of the application were denial, and as today, 2023, around 10,200 10, families are still waiting for federal aid. The main problem is that they don't have any document to prove their legal right relationship with the real estate property. They don't have a formal title that some people, that's the way that some people know. Uh, the federal law referred to the local law for the proof of ownership or legal uh, rights over the property. Puerto Rico is a civil law jurisdiction different from the United States meaning that we had a civil code that is a book with all the law that regulates almost all the private lives of our citizens. We approved a new civil code around 2020, and according to our lawmakers, we had a new law um, moved to the 21st century with all the most advanced legal concepts of private Mara worldwide, but you know what? We didn't take any knowledge or knowledge about what happened in 2017 with Maria. We replicate the same concept of property law of Romans, and we didn't introduce any change that had the huge amount of the population that live in Puerto Rico in the formal settlements on the island. I think this is very sad because we we replicate the same that we already know that doesn't work in, the, in this kind of situation for the most vulnerable people, for poor communities or low-income low communities. And that's the problem that with Habitat of Humanity, I have been working on for the last three years. Rethinking the law, try to find a legal solution, because like you say, I am a lawyer, that help communities to have access to, to federal funds, to recovery process, and also to have more resilience work to, uh, to work with this situation after a disaster. Yes, it's a very tricky situation, isn't it? On one side, people who live in informal settlements are more, more vulnerable to storms and other disasters. And then after your house has been knocked down by a hurricane, you cannot even be recognized uh, to receive support, really adding insult to injury. But how do you actually deal with that situation? I think we need to rethink about our law. I am a lawyer, and like I said before, we think that a solution, uh, we, we, we never change the law. We just have this uh, big law about property, and we never have any advantage related to that, because 
the property law is the area of law that is more traditional, uh, respond more to the economic power like banks or something like that. But I think we need to understand that this problem with the recovery funds affects all the population on the island, even the big uh, uh, companies or even the banks. And that's, that's, that is my kind of approach. We need to make a more flexible way to acquire a formal title for low-income communities or people who has no access to the traditional ways to have uh, uh, property. And also, and this is the second part of my investigation, we need to work more in collective ownership of the property. Because I think in the case of Maria and after the disaster, we realized that people who live in community with community with collective ownership or community land trust, they have better um, opportunities to access to federal funds and they had better opportunity to recover after uh, hurricanes or any kind of disasters. Uh, and that's my research. I tried to work on law, try to change some kind of law, flexible, uh, try to make more flexible way for, for, for access to a formal title and also to educate communities to understand the importance to have any a new way of property in a community land trust or maybe in a different like of community property, they they are more power. They have more power to to work. Uh, they have uh, more power to to request from the government, from the central government, or federal government, to have more aids for them. For the non-experts out there. Could you, in simple terms, explain what a community land trust is? Yeah, the property uh, we always think about it is that one person has all the rights over a property. But when we talk about community property, is that a community is the owner of the property, and some and the people who live there, the residents, have some rights over the property. They have to right to construct, to live there for generation, but the land is always for the community. If a person left the property and they and nobody is there, the land come back to the to the community and the community can sell it or maybe can give someone else from this, the same community rights over the property. And I think that's the, the magic of the community land trust or the community property, the collective property, because keep the community together and help the community to be their self-government. For I think it's the best way to explain it. It's such a fantastic idea, uh, community being self-governing and owning the land together. But can I ask you, in terms of the legal side of things, how does that work? Is the community registered as a legal persona? Do they have a bank account? Do they have elections and governance? Uh, how, how does the whole thing work? They, they could have that kind of government. You know, we had we had we had we had a wonderful example in Puerto Rico that already work as community land trusts, and I will give you wonderful example. First, I want to talk about Caño Martin Peña Trust. This is a well-established community land trust. It had been a land trust for the last, I think, twenty years, with empowered community, local authority, and no-profit organization that has managed 
to block the political intention to displace the community, a, a community in a very central and rich metropolitan area. This is a very low-income community. And this uh, Caño Martín Peña had uh, uh, bank accounts, like you asked me, had uh, some kind of the co- democracy. Uh, they, they work on the way to, to, to establish rule for all the community already. And they also obtain very important world recognition uh, 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 because they are very famous in Puerto Rico and very famous around the world. Now they are working in a, they have a caño, Martin Peña, they are working in a different ways to help people uh, after the hurricane, for example, they give uh, titles, uh, um, certification for FEMA, and FEMA has to recognize that title, even when it's not the title that we had in the regular property law in Puerto Rico, because this is a way that they work on it. And I think it, it helps people, especially low-income people, uh, to have more resilience after a disaster. We also have this very famous two a land trust that name is Casa Pueblo Trust that was created by a non-profit organization to conserve a forest in a, in a central area of Puerto Rico. And now this community land trust is working with the community to create a, a, a network for energy, for renewable energy, for solar energy and had access to federal funds and also to grants of non-profit organization funds and work on to be independent from the from the uh, energy from the uh, government in Puerto Rico to be completely energy uh, independent and is a very famous uh, community land trust we also had Rio Pedra trust and something else but we had example that can that prove that did come this this kind of community land trust work and can be a solution in Puerto Rico. You mentioned a couple of really strong examples here. How far do you think this can be scaled? How big a part of the population can be helped through this sort of solution? Right now, uh, it's, it's a very small portion of the population, but I think if we empower the community, we educate because it's a it, even it's a very technical for me that I am a, prof, a law professor, a very technical law concept that uh, is, uh, is very difficult for them too. But we are working with Habitat for Humanity. We already made these toolkits for the popula- for the communities, uh, and not just for a lawyers. Uh, I have been giving a conference for a judge for our lawmakers, uh, only the legal community, but we think the next steps is to educate community, to empower community, that they understand the concept and they can choose this concept because it's a very, it's a very different concept of property, I know, that they can move to the next level maybe and they can work in a different kind of community land trust. I think the, the best thing about community land trust that it can change according to the community needs. It can be different from one community to another community. But the central concept that the, com- the communities, the owner of the land, and the community made their own law for the, co- for the land, I think is important, especially when you have different needs 
for community. One of them uh, can be environmental needs, or some of them energy needs, or some of them just to be a, a planification needs. It sounds like establishing a community land trust has to be a community-driven process, but that often requires some external technical supports. In addition to external technical supports, what are some of the ways that agencies can help communities to establish these kinds of trusts? I think we we need to work with communities because I, I, I don't think that the solution has to come outside. They had to realize that they have this problem. I think after the disaster, most of the community, low-income community, realized that they don't have enough power or they have uh, a huge problem related to title or to formal title in Puerto Rico. Now we need to work with them, to talk to them, to educate them about what solution, legal solution we have or they have to work with this before the next disaster came. And I think education, not just from lawyers, just from different sectors, and also support uh, with different ideas is important. Like I said before, uh, El Can- El Community Land Trust Casa Pueblo, it had been working in an er- energy solution for uh, the community. And I think that that's something that a lawyer can do, but also another kind of experts, experts like engineers can help this community to do. But I think it had to be in a different approach, but also with respect to the community decision, because not all community, uh, not all community are ideal for community land trust, or not all community are ready for this type of solution that is very different from the traditional way of property. It's really a very organic way to think about law, and and what I really like about what you say is that. At the core of it is really the mobilization of the community and the community realizing and understanding the issues facing them. And if you don't have that basis, you really can't do anything. And and I think that's the key, because if you make this wonderful law, I already work on some of them, but the community had no, how can I say, had no, uh, how the, the community doesn't feel that it's her law. The community, the, the law is that, you know, it's no law at all. Because law responds to the needs of the population. But if the population is not taking an account when you make an, a law, it's no, it's, it's no worded. It will be a dead law at all. You're obviously touching on a very political issue here. Land ownership is very contentious. There's a lot of power involved. Have you gotten any pushback on your work? I have been working in a with habitat in a three different uh, law. Uh, one of them was to simplify the proof title procedure, and that's a law uh, because Puerto Rico, if Puerto Rico doesn't approve that law, we are going to lose a lot of federal funds, uh, and that's why the law was approved. But I also draft a bill to reduce the terms of advert possession from 10 years to five years, because I think it's a very long term. Uh, and, you know, the bank was again, or is against, the banks are against that law. And it's very sadly because 
I think if you can have more flexible way or more or reduce the term for adverse possession, you can have more. The people will be uh, more active taking care of their land because they know that they're gonna lose the land if they are not put the land uh, in a productive way. But the banks thinks it's a it's against the traditional concept and they're gonna lose money or I don't know what. And they were the the main opponents to my my bill in the last few years. Of course, you've already talked about how having that legal status can make communities more resilient to disasters because they can make their claims more effectively. But how does the process of having a community land trust change the, the way the community itself responds to disasters? My impression after the disaster is that at least in community, they now want to work to be prepared for the next challenge. And they are more active, more worried about this is not something that could happen. We never know when. They now realize that maybe this year we are going to experience this, this kind of disaster again. What going, where we're going to do. Thank you so much, Dr. Perez. I think the example that you shared in Puerto Rico is truly inspiring. Dr. Perez, thank you so much for coming on Humanitarian and uh, sharing your experience with us. It's It's been fascinating to hear about the work you're doing. Thank you, you guys. Alex, that was such a fascinating story Dr. Perez told us from Puerto Rico especially the way they work with collective ownership of land as a way of, of scaling. Because as as we talked about when we had Shisan from Somalia uh, tell us about their work, it's it's fantastic work they do, but it seemed to be very hard to scale to, to a significant... Uh, <clears throat> but it seemed to be very hard to really scale it to meet the millions of people in need in Somalia. Now, how do you feel about... Puerto Rico is that is that really scalable? This this focus on collective ownership of land. Absolutely, and I think over the past few decades we've seen this movement of community land um, community land trusts emerge all over the world, and they are popping up in country in dozens and dozens of countries. The movement is still fairly small in comparison to another movement that I actually draw a tremendous amount of inspiration from. And that is more of a rural movement uh, led by indigenous peoples and local communities around the world. And they have also been mobilizing for decades and decades. But where I draw a lot of hope from is that from 2015 to 2020, there were over 100 million hectares of indigenous uh, local community lands that were formally recognized. And that was only possible because of that legwork and that groundwork that was done by those communities. But it does show the potential uh, of that transformation at scale. And now just to give you a bit of context, 100 million hectares in five years, that's 300 Puerto Ricos in total uh, square uh, surface area. And we still have a long ways to go. There's over 1.3 billion hectares of indigenous lands that have not been formally recognized. But it what this uh, window of five years shows us is that with political will, with adequate technical and financial resources, and with patient uh, support from donors and supporting agencies that and you giving uh, communities the power they can make uh, transform uh, they they can make transformative change at a large scale 
Those are really impressive results, Alex. I, I, I get that, and I can see that in many of the countries where we operate, collective ownership of land is, is, is quite prevalent. But what do we do in situations where it's not like that, or in the areas where individuals own land? There's still a need to be able to scale interventions to, to meet the needs. Yeah, and you're right. And with climate change sort of driving disasters and making them more and more intense every single year, governments and agencies are going to need to find tools to address individual and collective needs at scale. And I think that that's where we can turn to the example of Ukraine, where the Ukrainian government has taken charge of this compensation and restitution process in the process. It emits an ongoing conflict, and the tools that they're using have the potential to transform the way that um, agencies and governments do this all over the world. Great. And, and who have you found for us to, uh, to discuss Ukraine with? So today we are joined by Yulia Panfil, who is the director of the Future of Land and Housing program at the New America Foundation. Welcome, Yulia. Thanks so much. It's really great to be here. So we've been kicking off most of these interviews with the first question, which is, why are you an HLP nerd? And what got you working on the future of property rights? That is a really great question. I think that, like a lot of HLP nerds, I sort of stumbled into this field. I am a journalist and a lawyer by training and was working uh, a long time ago now at a corporate law firm and had a pro bono client at the UN. And this client was trying to negotiate uh, agreements between mining companies and indigenous communities in the Peruvian Amazon. And we were sort of helping to ensure that the rights of these communities were respected. And while the project wasn't really called a land rights project, it quickly became apparent that it was actually all about land and property rights. And I just became obsessed. I sort of uh, became so fascinated with the ways in which housing, land and property is foundational to everything. It truly is the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And without a stable home, you can't hold down a job. You can't access food and have economic security. Um, just all of those intersections, it felt like if I was going to do international development work, it felt like a really interesting and worthwhile topic within that work to venture into. So here I am. And so what what is it about the future of this sector that excites you? I think that traditionally in much of the world, uh, it's been incredibly expensive, time-consuming, and difficult to map people's land and provide them with documents that show that they're the owners of the land and the homes that they live in. And over the last 20 years, really, 
there have been several technological advances that can really turn this process on its head, speed it up, make it cheaper, and also decentralize it and put it into the hands of communities themselves uh, so they don't have to rely on a central government who may not be able to or may not want to help them uh, secure their rights for various reasons. And so I think that it's like many fields, just one that has a lot of potential to be transformed by new advances. But I think that the way in which we navigate that transformation uh, really matters because it can be taken in a positive, constructive direction, or some of those technologies can also be used to disenfranchise people and make land more opaque and unequal. And so it seems like we're in this moment where we have the tools to really chip away at the problem of land insecurity at a scale that we could, couldn't before. And I think that this scalability is one of the challenges that we've been grappling with. And so I think this leads into really well into a report that New America recently published called Can Ukraine Transform Post-Crisis Property Compensation and uh, Restitution Reconstruction? Did I say that correctly? Yes, you did. Okay. So most of our audience are familiar with the scale of destruction that has happened in Ukraine. But can you put some figures into context and what tell us sort of what the implications are for reconstruction? Yeah, so it's been, uh, this interview is taking place almost exactly on the two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of neighboring Ukraine. And in those two years, more than 11 million Ukrainians have been displaced from their homes. It's been the largest exodus of uh, people as the result of a conflict since the Second World War. And more than a million homes have been damaged or destroyed, uh, mostly along the front line in the south and east of Ukraine, but not exclusively. As you know, Russians are shelling as far in as Lviv. And so the government now, and these losses, I should say, uh, I mean, the figures are just astronomical. They're in the trillions of the amount of damage and the cost of rebuilding. And the government in the midst of all of this has done something that I think is really incredible and sort of without precedent. They've rolled out a a program that allows Ukrainians whose homes have been damaged or destroyed by the Russians to file compensation claims and receive funds to rebuild their homes in the midst of hostilities. So e-recovery is the name of this program, and it's the world's first ever example of a government compensation program for damaged or destroyed property that is rolled out digitally at scale in the midst of a war. And I think that e-recovery's potential to transform the way people get back into their homes after a war globally is hard to overstate. 
the program was rolled out in earnest in the middle of 2023. And since then, the latest figures from Ukraine's Ministry of Infrastructure are that eRecovery has processed more than 83,000 compensation claims and paid out more than 45,000. And another half million or so claims have been initiated through the Ukrainian government's DIA platform and are in the queue. Okay. So when you say that it's unprecedented, and what's the typical practice that has preceded this moment? Like, what, what did this look like before this example exam, uh, emerged? Yeah, so typically getting victims back into their homes after a war, first of all, the process typically does not start in earnest until after a war is over. And then it stretches on for many, many years, often decades. It can be incredibly expensive. It's mired by corruption. Uh, And a big reason for why it's so difficult to get people back into their homes after a war is that often the records that victims use to prove that they had lived in the home that they want to get compensation for, that they want to get back into, those property records are often missing, destroyed, or they maybe didn't exist to begin with. So many countries don't have functioning property registers. And so victims are unable to present the necessary evidence to prove that they are the rightful owners of those homes and get compensation. Um, Sorry, there there are a lot of other factors that sort of complicate things in the meantime. Often belligerents make things worse deliberately by destroying property registries, courts, and other civil infrastructure that would help with property return. And you actually see the Russians doing this in this conflict. Uh, You saw this happen in the Kosovo conflict where the Serbian forces stole property records as they retreated. Uh, Oftentimes, occupying forces will actually move into the homes that are being abandoned by the people fleeing, and that further complicates property return. Uh, You saw, for example, the Islamic State confiscated and then later sold the homes and land of displaced Iraqis to fund their activities. And so The longer a conflict drags on and the longer people who are displaced from their homes have to wait before being able to get back into their homes, the more potential there is for these knock-on impacts and these further complications, the more potential there is for their property records to be lost, for example, or destroyed, or for somebody else to move in. And so for all those reasons, it's The fact that Ukraine is able to process these claims almost in real time and get people back into their homes in a matter of months instead of years or decades is just such a leap forward for this process. And what what were the baseline conditions in Ukraine that made this type of approach possible now that may not be existing in other places? Yeah, so I would say that there that Ukraine had three major advantages that sort of poised this type of transformation to happen here. The first is that Ukraine 
property records in Ukraine are in large part digitized. The registry is not fully complete, but it's about 50% complete. So it's not perfect, but there's an existing property registry with which to work. The second is that uh, Ukraine has a really sophisticated e-government program that existed actually before the war. So in 2019, Ukrainian President Zelensky launched the DIA e-government app. DIA means action in Ukrainian. And he put forward this vision that Ukraine would be a digital state in a smartphone. So he had this vision that Ukrainians should be able to interact with the government and get basic government services digitally through an app. And in fact, currently about half of all of Ukraine's population uses DIA regularly for everything from filing tax returns to receiving their pensions to registering companies. And so the government had this existing app that was pretty ubiquitously used. And what happened was that in the first couple of weeks after the war broke out, the government was able to add new functionalities onto that app, including the functionality that allowed Ukrainians to file claims for damaged property. And it was a platform that was already trusted. And so people used it, which sort of brings me to the third uh, differentiator, which I actually think is a bit of a differentiator, but is very, very quickly closing. And Ukraine, I don't think, is so unique in this way. Uh, Ukraine's population is highly digitally fluent, digitally sophisticated, very, very high smartphone penetration, very high digital fluency. So the learning curve for being able to file a compensation claim online was relatively shallow. I think that truthfully, the rest of the world is very much catching up, if not caught up. And I think that that differentiator will go away very soon. But I would say that, that those kind of those three factors to me were what enabled Ukraine to spin this thing up pretty successfully. And what are what are some of the challenges and the risks associated with doing sort of this this type of approach that the Ukrainian government is pursuing right now? So as I mentioned, one of the main advantages of e-recovery is that it is digital first and that lowers the costs of the program, it increases accessibility, it can increase transparency and lower the opportunities for corruption. But the flip side of that is that for older claimants, folks who might not have a smartphone and otherwise who are not online for whatever reason, that does make the program harder to access. E-recovery does have offline brick and mortar options, but it really is a digital first program. And so its digital pr primacy can pose some challenges. Other than that, I would say that the program experiences some challenges that are both expected and not insurmountable. So in the first months of the program's rollout, there were certain 
inefficiencies that became obvious, certain gaps between what the laws say and how DIA interprets those laws, things that are being worked out in real time. But I'll give you an example. Uh, the e-recovery program for a property that is owned jointly by multiple people in order to file a compensation claim, you need to get the consent of each co-owner of that property. Now, in the middle of a war where a co-owner may be incapacitated or deceased or held on occupied territory, that's not necessarily practical. That's the type of mismatch uh, between the kind of the structure of the program and the realities on the ground that is both understandable and being worked out in real time. So there's an active NGO community that is liaising with the Ukrainian government to try to iron some of these things out. Uh, for example, up until a couple of months ago, people who had repaired their homes out of pocket before the compensation program was spun up were not eligible to retroactively claim compensation and get reimbursed for the repairs that they had made out of pocket. That has since been fixed. And so these are the types of challenges that I would anticipate will be uh, continuously surfaced and addressed as this program moves forward. And do you see an application to this for like disaster recovery? So, you know, um, there was that massive, massive earthquake in uh, Turkey and northern Syria uh, last year. There's been sort of historic floods or multiple historic floods in Pakistan uh, recently. Do you see that this could also be a tool in those types of situations? Yes, absolutely. I think that this can be a tool in any situation where somebody's home was destroyed suddenly and unexpectedly, and the focus is really on getting people back into their homes. And in fact, in the U.S., uh, after Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico back in 2017, the government relief agency ran into this exact issue of people not being able to prove that they owned the homes that they were trying to get compensation for. Um, and they allowed those people to just sign affidavits uh, saying that they were the property owners, which is kind of all the way to the other end of the extreme. But I think that there is so much potential in post any post-crisis context. Well, thank you so much. This is, this is, we are truly talking about the present, but also the future of this sector and uh, really appreciate you coming on and telling us about how we are witnessing sort of a, an, scalability on an un, on an unprecedented level um, with this great example in Ukraine. And hopefully we can take some lessons uh, up from that into other contexts. It's always great to talk to you and talk HLP, to nerd out about HLP and also to talk about my home country of Ukraine. So yeah, thank you for having me on and for doing this podcast. So, Alex, that brings us to the end of our interviews. We have more or less completed these two episodes. So, 
So where does that leave us? Well, at the beginning of this podcast, we likened HLP in the humanitarian sector to the invisibility cloak from the Douglas Adams series, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And the invisibility cloak is created by the generation of a field that convinces people's brains that it is someone else's problem. Now that you've been to Somalia, Puerto Rico, and Ukraine, has that invisibility cloak been lifted for you, and how? I have to say it's, a, it's an extremely accurate framing of the problem. It's such a, such a precise metaphor, actually. And I think, I think we have to recognize that we generally underutilize Douglas Adams in the humanitarian sector. I think we need to put him up there next to uh, Henri Dunant, maybe, the second Henri Dunant. Oh, I mean, he was a public policy nerd, and he was committed to pointing out the absurdities of large um, administrative systems. Uh, overly bureaucratic system. Yeah, and I think he 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 nailed it with this one, right? Because I have to admit, I was slightly ashamed as we got into this to discover how little I actually knew myself about HLP. I mean, I've worked in this sector my entire career. I should have known more. I should have been more acutely aware of these issues, and I was not. And I've actually thought a lot about why that is. And, and I think it's partly because it's simply not our thing. You can't do it on a nine-month ECHO contract. It's deeply political. It's structural. You can get in trouble. It's about protection. It is really, really difficult to tackle this issue. It's also incredibly important. But it just doesn't sit very well with the way we've structured the business. And that's why we talk it away in a corner of the protection cluster rather than actually placing it front and center in the humanitarian architecture, at least giving it a cluster of its own. A cluster of its own or making sure that it is embedded in each of the clusters and coordinated by, uh, because it affects all, it affects, rather than siloing it away as its own separate thing, making sure that it is something that everybody appropriates, that no one can say that they, it is invisible to, to them. The second reflection I have on, on, on HLP is this thing we've jokingly have said to all of the people we interviewed, why are you such a nerd? It's that... You know, it's the geekiness around the people who engage in this and the passion that they have for the issue. And I think it reminds me of, of Cashland. It reminds me of all of the people who have been fiercely fighting for and are passionate about scaling cash as a modality for humanitarian action. It's the same combination of, on one side, a highly technical issue where you really need to think very closely around how do you actually get distributed and you have to use data to understand how it works and so on. So there's a real geeky side to this. And on the other hand, there's a clear transformational potential in both HLP and, and in cash. And so in terms of the community around uh, this issue, it reminds me of, of that, of cash. Yeah, but I think what cash has done really, really well in the past few years is done a great job, one, of communicating its impact and the second has been really great at communications in general. Uh, it, it's, it has great marketing. Um, and I think that that's something that we need to do better as uh, the, the geeks is to bring other people in, to, to get people to connect with their own stories, their own HLP stories. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I think it's, I haven't thought this through, but I think it's also an easier sell somehow. I'm not taking anything away from from the work it took to actually get it onto the agenda and, and how much resistance there was. But it's a more intuitive idea. Don't give people tennis socks, give them cash. Right? I, I think, and if we've worked in the sector, we've all seen the adverse uh, impact of, of, uh, of inappropriate, in-kind 
support, right? So, so I think it, it is an easier sell, but I agree with you. You guys need to bloody rebrand, right? And you also need to start answering questions with less than two and a half thousand words. <laughs> I think that that's going to be the biggest challenge for us. Um, but uh, I think that cash also fits into what you just described, the the nine-month uh, quick distribution program, whereas HLP is the ultimate nexus issue. It is the thing that cuts across all the different uh all the different uh, phases of displacement. I think maybe an additional thing that crossed my mind is around clearly technology plays a role here in, in, in a big way and will enable us to scale in, in ways as we see in Ukraine, right? It, it, that, that, that potential is there now. Ukraine is, in terms of capacity and government support, uh, in many ways, a best-case scenario. But clearly something can be done much faster and better than, than what we're doing today. And a side issue that really pops out there that, that I have been interested in for a while but haven't heard spoken about in this way is the issue of identity, of, of uh, your, your personal digital identity and how that plays in in terms of being able to document what you own and, and receive assistance and all of that. And I think that's really an area we need to put spotlight on. Absolutely. And I think that the potential for innovation in the sector is boundless. And I think that there's already a lot of amazing work that has been done by the development actors, by the development sector, which humanitarians have just not been tapping into. And so I think that our potential for growth, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We often just need to look to the people who have already been doing a lot of that heavy lifting. So anybody who's interested in these issues, there is an ongoing series of conferences on housing, land, and property rights uh, in in crisis contexts that uh, Iru and Ibere mentioned in the first episode. We have actually the follow-up events to the, the one that was held in D.C. last year, and the next one is actually going to be in Puerto Rico, where we are going to be meeting some of the communities that establish community land trusts. And so that is, is at the beginning of April uh, of uh, 2024, and I will put the link to that conference in the show notes, and hopefully people will come and uh, join us there. Yeah, so, I mean, Alex, all in all, I'm just hugely grateful for you bringing uh, this idea to the table, and, and I've thoroughly enjoyed working with you on it. It's, it's been a great journey through HLP land, if we can call it that, um, and I've been truly impressed with the, the colleagues we have we have spoken to, their passion, their professionalism, the important work they're doing. I don't know whether we'll get it right in the future, to be honest with you. I think it is difficult. There are many reasons why it is really difficult with the, the current humanitarian modalities, but it gives me a lot of hope and, and, and encouragement to see all of the great work going on. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity to, to highlight some of this amazing work, and hopefully it'll inspire others to, to continue and do some, some even more amazing things so that in a couple of years we can do a, a follow-up episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. May if you guys denerd yourself, yeah, we can talk about it. <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds like a good challenge. Rights and the freedom to be for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each. Who will lead? Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate, and no one is safe. We're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. 
for the truth. You've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>